Welcome to Plodcast, episode 107. 107. Thanks for having me along. I hope you're enjoying your drive or whatever it is you're doing. Um, I've been asked, uh, uh, well, I've been asked in different ways what I think of the of the whole Josh uh, Harris thing. The I Kiss Dating Goodbye uh, phenomenon went on to uh, be a pastor in the Sovereign Grace uh, movement for for some time, Sovereign Sovereign Grace Ministries, Sovereign Grace Churches for uh, a while. He uh, recently announced his uh, divorce, and then announced uh, just day a few days after that that he was no longer a Christian. And then after that, I just read that he has marched in his first uh, gay pride parade. Uh, so the apostasy he's he's traveled the full extent of the of the downward arc that's found in Romans 1, almost the full arc. Um, so what do I think of, what do I think of this? Well, the, the first thing is to, is to point out that it's obviously sad. It's obviously sad for his loved ones who still are faithful to Christ and, and to see him fall away is um, just a normal heartbreaking uh, sort of thing. But it's, it's not as though uh, this whole thing was a, a total blindside. The one thing, um, so Josh Harris's career has been made out of, shaped by kissing things goodbye. He kissed his, uh, kissed dating goodbye. He kissed his wife goodbye. He kissed his Christianity goodbye. He kissed his commitment to uh, the biblical sexual norms, goodbye. The one thing he's not kissed goodbye is Josh Harris. So, um, the, so where, where would I, um, where would I assign that? Where's the culprit in this? Well, obviously Josh Harris is responsible for his decisions and for his actions. And I, nothing I'm saying here ought to minimize, um, that he is, he is a responsible agent responsible before God for the things he decides to do. But is there any systemic problem? Well, yeah, I would, I would place a significant part of the um, difficulty, a significant part of the problem with evangelical celebrity culture. In other words, he was launched into the stratosphere of um, evangelical stardom when he was a very, very young man. And I don't think that that was smart. And part of the reason for that, I think, had to do with um, the position that homeschooling was in at the time, where homeschoolers were uh, taunted and maligned, and some of them reacted by feeling like they had something huge to prove. Okay, so yes, I was homeschooled, uh, and I'm going to Harvard uh, on a full-ride scholarship for, the, for my work on the violin and in astrophysics. So there's some people who reacted, okay, well, we're going we're gonna, to uh, dunk the moon and hang on the rim, right? We're going we're gonna to show everybody. And uh, so there, there will always be people who drive for excellence and who strive for excellence. And, uh, and Josh, Har- Josh Harris was uh, launched to a position where he was a, a teaching authority uh, way too soon. Um, the Apostle Paul says, tells Timothy not to um, uh, ordain a neophyte. The Greek word is neophyte. 
don't ordain a neophyte, he says. Uh, and Tyndall, in Tyndall's translation, uh, says don't ordain a young scholar. Don't ordain a neophyte. Why? Because uh, if they fall into the sin of pride, they become prey to the devil. And that's what we have here. I think the problem was the problem with um, Josh Harris's fall, I think, largely uh, resides with his rise. Um, who promoted him? How did we get, how, why did we promote him the way we did? Why did, it, why did he receive the adulation and the praise that he did? So um, what goes up must come down, or at least what goes up in that way must come down. Always we will be Continuing with podcast uh, 107, we come now to Hamartiology. We need special creepy music for the Hamartiology section, I think. Well, hamartiology, hamartios is the Greek word for sin, and we're looking at all the different Greek words for various sins. We've already considered the verb that expressed unbelief, apisteo, and the noun, apistia, is obviously related. Uh, Jesus did not do many miracles in his hometown because of their unbelief, Matthew 13, 58, Mark 6, 6. The disciples were unable to cast out a particularly stubborn demon, because of their unbelief. That's in Matthew 17, 20. It's striking that in Mark's account of that same incident, the father of the, demon po- of the demon-possessed boy cried out for Jesus to save him from his own unbelief. That's in Mark 9, uh, 24. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Jesus rebuked his disciples after the resurrection for their reluctance to believe those who had reported him risen. That's in Mark 16, 14. Paul exults in the fact that the unbelief of man is incapable of thwarting the faith of God. Romans 3.3, when Abraham was promised a son in his old age, he did not stagger in unbelief. Romans 4.20, the unbelieving Jews were broken off of the olive tree of the true Israel because of unbelief. Romans 11.20, if they give up that unbelief, they're going to be grafted back in again. Romans 11.23, before Paul was converted, he was an evil man, and like his countrymen, was caught in the web of unbelief. 1 Timothy 1.13 So Christians are told to guard against the sin of unbelief, Hebrews 3.12, a sin that results in departing from the living God. The Jews in the wilderness could not enter God's rest because of unbelief, it tells us in Hebrews 3.19. And in the same way today, Christians are to resist unbelief, a sin that remains a sin, even if we give it a fancy theological name, if we call it theological sophistication or theological nuance. Uh, it remains unbelief. Uh, Eugene Genovese, in one of his books, uh, he was a, an atheist who uh, later became uh, a Roman Catholic, became a Christian. And uh, he said whenever he was talking to, uh, when, in his atheist days, whenever he uh, was talking to a liberal Christian, he had that deep assured feeling that he was in the presence of a fellow unbeliever. So our our book review um, uh, this time around is uh, by a couple of uh, people, Boldrin and Levine, uh, and the name of the book is Against Intellectual Monopoly. Against Intellectual Monopoly. Now, uh, this this book is all about it's it was quite a fascinating book and I'm sort of on a jag right now because I'm I'm reading another book that may come up uh, 
in a future uh, podcast on the same topic on patents and copyrights. Um, the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Constitution uh, explicitly grants the authority to grant patents and copyrights uh, to Congress, but it does so. And it says, uh, "quote for limited times." For limited times, and this the the title of this book is quite striking because it's called "Against Intellectual Monopoly." Um, and usually, when the when people are talking about uh, talking about this issue, they uh, they want to talk about intellectual property. Okay, now it's quite a challenging issue. Can you steal an object by successfully reproducing it? Can you steal an object by reproducing it? So here here are different um, here are different challenges. Suppose we're living in a very rudimentary technological society. Things are pretty basic. And one day, uh, your job is hauling rocks. And one day, you look across at your neighbor, whose job is also hauling rocks. And you see that he has built a rudimentary wheelbarrow. And he's loading his wheelbarrow up with rocks. And he's, and he pushes it. And he's having a much uh, more productive day than you are. And the first thought that's, that's going to occur to you is to get yourself a wheelbarrow. Now, here's the thing. If you go over and steal his wheelbarrow, then that's that's just a, that's simply an issue of property rights. But if you say, "Oh, what a great idea," right? Um, and you m- go into your uh, shop and manufacture your own wheelbarrow for hauling your own rocks, have you stolen anything from him? Or make it even more basic. Uh, instead of carrying logs, he gets his son to carry one end of the log and he carries the other end of the log. And you say, hey, that's a good idea. And you get your son to carry it into the log. Does he own that technique? And you say, well, of course, that, that, don't be ridiculous. Well, here, this is the, this is, uh, the, the issue because we're, we're well into the realm of the ridiculous. The U.S. Constitution gives Congress the authority to grant patents and uh, copyrights uh, for limited times, for limited times. There are two other forms of uh, intellectual property. There's, pat- there's patents for inventions. There's copyrights for like novels and poetry and stuff. Then there are trade secrets, and then there are trademarks. So the Nike swoosh is a trademark. Uh, the way Colonel Sanders makes his chicken taste like that is a trade secret. The, the way uh, Coca-Cola makes, makes Coca-Cola taste the way it does, that's a trade secret. Um, a book that a, novel, a novelist publishes that he published last year and he holds the copyright, that's the copyright. And a man who invents something uh, can get a patent for it. Well, should you be able to patent oh, a football play, right? Should you, should you be able to patent a play where you read and you say, well, that's, that's kind of ridiculous, right? Well, it's been attempted. We're, we're well into uh, crazy times. So when Congress first began patenting or, or allowing for uh, copyright, uh, the, I believe the period of time that you granted for uh, an author was 14 years. In other words, someone developed, someone wrote a great book. It was a big seller. 
you granted him, basically, you granted him a head start. And he could get his book to market. Other people couldn't make cheaper editions of the same book and profit off, and profit off of his, um, his creative work and have him not receive any uh, income from your cheap version. Well, now it's something like, a, it started out 14 years. Now it's something like 75 years past the death of the author. Um, so we're, we are well into the, uh, the regime of what these authors call intellectual monopoly, which is not the same thing as intellectual property. Now, let's say, here's a, um, here's a suppose you go into a, a restaurant, you really like uh, the, the sauce that they have on the steak, and you ask for a box for your, you don't eat all of it, you ask for a box, you're a great cook, and you go home and you reverse engineer how they did that sauce. Right, okay, and let's say that sauce is a trade secret. You reverse engineer it, and you, um, uh, you're able to duplicate that sauce, and you, you serve it to people in your home, and they can't tell the difference between the sauce that you made and the sauce that this famous chef at this restaurant made. All right, so you've duplicated. You've duplicated what he did. Have you stolen anything from him? Now that's not as that's that's not a simple question. You you didn't break into his premises. The only thing you took uh, with you was the the steak and the sauce that they sold to you. How how is it possible to be a thief by reproducing it? Okay, so intellectual monopoly is uh, because if you you know if I invented a little let's say a little. Um, the reason this is such a big deal is because of digital music and because of movies and pirated editions and all of that. Uh, making copies, making copies of something is now cheap and easy. And there are some intellectual property anarchists who believe that all information should be free. And someone's going to say, but then you're going to, you're going to destroy innovation people are not people are going to stop um producing stuff to copy if if ever if you have a state of anarchy but then if you have a, a a state of total bureaucratic overload which is where we are now you are inhibiting innovation the other direction so for example when the steam engine was first invented or the cotton gin was first invented um a lot of the early battles over patents prevented those inventions from being improved. Once, uh, once someone could, you know, once the thing is out there in the market, people can tinker with it and improve it. But then if they're in a costly 10, 20 year battle over patent law, uh, everybody suffers because you don't, they don't get the improvements. So intellectual uh, property is a good thing. But we have to figure out a way to protect intellectual property without having it grow up into an overgrown monster called intellectual monopoly. And this book, Against Intellectual Monopoly, is a good place to start if you're interested in this sort of thing at all. God, don't never change. 
You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.